This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This weekend, the 63rd annual Boone County Art Show will temporarily sweep away all computer equipment, desk gadgets and photographs of employees' loved ones from the ground floor of the bank's headquarters on Broadway, along with all the artworks that usually hang there as part of the bank's permanent collection, to be replaced by around 200 works of art created by artists who reside in Boone County or live elsewhere but are members of the Columbia Art League. I would say that the show has been going on longer than any employee can remember, but one employee at the bank did just celebrate her 70th anniversary with the bank, so it is possible that Rini does remember that first show in 1959. The story of how it got started is part of local law. Artists were exhibiting their work outside the bank along Broadway and it started to rain. So the bank president went out and invited them all to bring their work into the bank. And in a moment of rain shower serendipity, the Boone County Art Show was born. The event has always been held in benefit of and in tandem with the Columbia Art League and I co-presided over the event for 11 years with one of my guests, the incomparable marketing manager for Central Bank of Boone County, Mary Wilkerson, who is joining me to chat all things Boone County Art Show along with the current executive director of the Columbia Art League and frequent Speaking of the Arts guest, Kelsey Hammond. Ladies, here we are again. It's the Boone County Art Show kick-off Eve. Hooray. It's here. I love being incomparable, by the way. <laughs> you really are. You, really you are. are. You are. So here is one thing I've always wondered about, Mary, but I never got around to asking. The story of Al Price inviting the artists in from the rain might as well be written in tablets of stone at this point. So <laughs> enshrined is it in local history. But I am sure that when Al Price suggested they all come in out of the rain, he did not foresee that every year, forevermore, the ground <laughs> floor of his bank was going to get invaded by artists. So what's your understanding of chapter two of that story titled, Who the Hell Let Them In Again? <laughs> Well, first of all, I hate to correct your facts, oh. but it was actually the president of the bank at the time, which was R.B. Price II, who is Al's uncle. Okay. And R.B.'s office at that time was literally right on the corner of the building, right off Broadway. So they had to have been like right outside his window. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sure he was just being really nice and saying, come on in. <laughs> But the simple truth is it was an easy decision to make going forward because the Price family in particular was a huge supporter of the arts from the very, very beginning of the bank organization. And so that partnership was kind of a no-brainer for us, honestly. I know, Mary, this is, you say, this is your absolute favorite weekend of the year. And yes, yep. there's lots of gorgeous art everywhere for a couple of days. And the musicians come and serenade the art viewers. And often there are leftover cakes from the preview night party. But besides <laughs> all of that, what is it that you love so much about it? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's so funny. It just so happens that today I was proofing the title cards. And there's just something magical about 
the discovery of these pieces as they come in, you know, you, I was reading the the names of the pieces and what they're made out of and kind of imagining what they might look like. And of course I'm completely wrong (laughs) because they come in and they're just completely different than what I picture. And I always joke that I never see all of the artwork, even though I'm there for two days. I just, you know, I, I'm so busy and I, you know, someone will say, hey, did you see that great watercolor? I'm like, no, I didn't see that great watercolor. <laughs> but I love how eclectic it is. It's it's so fun. So, Kelsey, I think this is, is this going to be your third Boone County Art Show? Mm-hmm. 2019 was your first. Then 2020 happened and the show kind of happened, but in a pandemic friendly way. And then last year was back to normal, more or less. So I know you cannot possibly love it as much as Mary because nobody can. But (laughs) what have been some of the special highlights for you over the last couple of years? Well, I think for me, because I staff the sales counter most of the weekend, it is so fun to meet new people who are just tickled to purchase maybe their first work of art or collectors who have been collecting art for a long time who come in and find something really special. So it's, it's seeing the connection between the buyer who's just so excited to get to purchase an an artwork, which if anyone has done that before, it feels magical. And so I encourage it, obviously, but I think that is what's really cool is then we get to talk about it. And, Oh, would you like, Oh, I like this. And there's always like a volunteer kind of hovering. Who's like, Oh my gosh, I saw that too. And it's just like this, this way to bond over something that in like the quote unquote entertainment world, you know, visual art where people can, get together and not have to talk about like the latest Marvel movie or something, which is great, (laughs) but it's a, it just feels like a community connection point, you know, and I I really like that piece. So in case anyone is listening to this and thinking, oh, great, I'll just take one of my works along to the bank on Friday evening, we should say, please don't, (laughs) as the (laughs) the deadline for entries was two weeks ago and works cannot be accepted from random people. But for future purposes, Kelsey, what is the procedure for getting a work into the show? Well, we have um, an entry form on our website. The bank has an entry form on their website. We have physical copies in the, the Art League, and people can pick it up, they can fill it out, and then return it back to us. And that it's pretty simple in terms of that process. You don't have to give us a picture. We don't have to see the artwork beforehand. You just have to be able to read the entire entry form <laughs> and make sure that you are <laughs> filling it out correctly and, and all that kind of stuff, which we can help you do. And then as long as you are a member of the Art League, or you live in Boone County, or you're a current student, 18 or older, then you can participate in the show. And Mary, this is an unjuried show, meaning that whatever works gets submitted by the entry deadline date and gets delivered tomorrow night, gets a spot in the show. But the show does have awards. So explain how the awards are allocated and who is this year's award judge? Yes, actually, the show is judged by someone outside the area, which is very important to me because I don't want them to, frankly, know any of the artists in the show or anything like that. So anyway, this year's judge, and it's done on Friday night, her name is Krista Alba. She's the assistant curator for the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, and she will come in at eight o'clock on Friday and she'll finish that night and we'll know the winners by the end of the night. And so people can enter as professional artists and non-professional artists. And we give some loose guidelines on how we would define those two categories. But then within those two categories, there are multiple award categories. 
So there's what, remind me what there are. Yeah, we have, um, oh gosh, there's nine different categories, painting, drawing, sculpture, multimedia, ceramics, fiber, what am I missing? Everything but photographs is basically what it comes down to. Yeah, right. And then in every, so there's there's nine categories in both the professional and non-professional division. And then there are first, second and third place awards in each category. Am I right? So there's 27 awards <laughs> right. altogether. Plus honorable mentions if, they, if the judge feels like doing that as well. So, I mean, it's kind of a Herculean task for the judge, but we don't tell her that when we recruit her. So, <laughs> smart. And, so, and then also there's the People's Choice Award, which people vote on all weekend. And then there's the Bank Purchase Award. Correct. And each year we choose, or the bank chooses, I say we because I, you know, help out we choose an award or choose a work that becomes part of the bank's permanent collection of almost 900 works that are spread across all the 18 branches and facilities around Boone County and Booneville and each year Mary with a little help from me gets to choose the work that will be acquired so what would you say we look for in a work Mary? (laughs) You know that's an interesting question because you know we again using the word eclectic we have a fairly eclectic collection we tend towards contemporary, I think, in general, but I think we're kind of just looking for something special and unique and, um, I don't know, it, it's an interesting question because, I mean, we've bought everything from paintings to ceramics to wood. I think it just is something that, well, frankly, I just like it. <laughs> <laughs> And the bank is always incredibly accommodating with works that are a little on the large side. We have had a (laughs) full-size metal horse that had to be dollied into the lobby. An 18, was it an 18-foot painting that was in six parts and had to be displayed on (laughs) side-by-side easels. And then last year, there was a substantially large mailbox made up of wooden segments. And I'm wondering, Mary, with your... Is it 30 plus years of Boone County? <laughs> this is officially my 30th year running this circus. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So over the last 30 years, what works might have lodged in your memory? <laughs> Good or bad, Diane? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. For anyone who goes over off of Lakeview by the municipal power plant, there's Mr. Jack Hammer who came in, he's a metal sculpture, found objects, metal sculpture, that was too big to get in the lobby. (laughs) And I just remember that sitting out on the sidewalk and thinking, this is so amazing and wonderful. And and so if you want to see him, he's over by the municipal power plant. That is is very, very happy memory for me. But gosh, there have been so many. Um, You know, the other one that always I always think of is do you remember the chastity belt that was that was kicked out of the Missouri State Fair? I don't remember that. <laughs> That's another one that makes me giggle every time I think about that piece. And we've just had some amazing things. And every year there's something that's memorable for me. There is. Kelsey, as far as you know, do we have any works that need special or interesting accommodations this year? Or does it, has it not shown up yet? It hasn't shown up yet. I think part of the magic of setting up the show is seeing it come in. And, and Mary's right. You sort of go, well, that's not what I pictured when I read that before. He knows sort of <laughs> the surprise element. So, um, uh, yeah, no, so far, I, I think there's just been one note so far that's been like, this needs to sit on the floor. And I'm like, okay, 
It's easy. To sit on the floor. It'll probably be pretty, you know, a regular thing. It's the 80 pound works that want to be hung on the wall that always kind of scare me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I know. And oh, also boy. then there's the works that are still wet because they're oil paintings and they've just been finished and we have to turn those away. Yeah, that's a big no-no. Big no-no. No Absolutely. wet works. And so if people want a sneak peek at the show before it officially opens at 9am on Saturday morning, there is a special fundraising event tomorrow evening from 8 till 10 with all ticket proceeds benefiting Columbia Art League programs. Mary, give us a sneak peek of the sneak peek. <laughs> well, we started doing this. Actually, I think we did it on our started it on our 50th anniversary of the art show. We decided to do a little celebratory reception on the night before the show and now it's kind of like a sneak peek. If you want to come in early, uh, we raise a little extra money for the Art League by charging a ticket price to come in on Friday evening. And so if you're interested in that, just contact the Art League and we'll get you on the list. But it's always fun because it happens at the same time the judge is judging and we have some food and it's a little chaotic, but I love it. It is fun wandering around the bank when it's all dark outside and then and then there's the judge deciding on the awards and it feels like you're really in this special moment in time plus this wine and cake so you know it's always good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the 63rd Boone County Art Show will take place this weekend at Central Bank of Boone County on the corner of Broadway and 8th Street in downtown Columbia. The event is free and open to all and art viewing hours are Saturday from 9 till 5 and Sunday from 11 until four with award ribbons handed out and the people's choice award winner declared sunday afternoon at 4 30 4 30 mary wilkerson and kelsey hammond thank you for continuing the tradition and for making time to chat thank you so much thank you for having us my ballet career crash landed on takeoff at the age of five when my pink tutued self was chased around the ballet room, which was actually just a church hall, by a five-year-old boy intent on kissing me. I retreated under a chair until the offender was moved to the other side of the hall and then told my mum I didn't want to go back and my pink tutu and leotard went off to the second-hand shop. But as an eight-year-old bridesmaid, I did win the wedding reception's disco dancing competition. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. But my next guest did not let any minor setbacks stop her three-year-old self from determinedly pursuing a future in dance. Karen Marek Grundy is a true daughter of Las Vegas, Nevada, born and raised there, and by the age of eight, studying modern dance with a dance master who trained under the mother of 20th century contemporary dance, Martha Graham. Marek went on to perform professionally in her hometown for 11 years as both a featured and lead dancer, and is probably the only person I know who is just one degree of separation from Eliza Minnelli. And as Columbia's luck would have it, back in 2000, she was recruited by the Columbia Performing Arts Centre and made our town her new home. In 2006, she formed the Missouri Contemporary Ballet, established the Dancing with the Missouri Stars annual fundraiser, founded the only non-profit ballet school in mid-Missouri that teaches classes to dancers of all ages in classical ballet, jazz and contemporary dance. And she has trained dancers who have gone on to be accepted into acclaimed dance programs across the United States, like the Joffrey Ballet, American Ballet Theatre, Kansas City Ballet and many others. Karen Marek-Grandy, welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. 
Thanks for having me, Diana. I always think it's amazing when a very young child is so focused on what they want to do and never wavers, whereas I'm in my 50s and I'm still trying to work it out. Do you remember or is it a story your family tell about how three-year-old Karen found her calling? I mean, I remember I was just always dancing. I used to choreograph shows for my grandparents in our living room probably (laughs) once a week. So it was just in the blood at all times. And I don't know from which blood it came. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last time you came to chat about dance on the show was back in the before times in March 2019, when the company was performing Camina Burana. And since then, of course, the world has performed some extremely complicated dance moves. And the Missouri Contemporary Ballet is now Marek Dance. So tell me, why did you decide to change? the name of the company after 15 years of developing a brand that had become really well known? Well, we wanted to really encompass all of the things that we do. So Merrick Center for Dance became the main organization being the home of Merrick Dance. We felt that with ballet in the title of our name, it was hindering us partially in the school, but also partially in the dance world. As we are a contemporary ballet company, we also do many other styles of dance. And one of the biggest things we want to be able to do, which is part of my vision, is to be more nationally known and recognized and to be out there touring beyond Missouri and beyond even the Midwest. So that was some of the bigger reasons was partially for enrollment for the school and then also for more touring opportunities for the company. Well, tell me a little bit about the school, because beyond Marek Dance, which is your performance troupe, there is also the umbrella organization, the Marek Center for Dance, which offers a lot more than a performance schedule. It is encompasses the school and everything else. So tell us a little bit about the mission and the vision for your school of dance. So Marek Center for Dance, our vision is to transform all lives through dance. And so we have this incredible program called Danceability, which works with dancers of all ages with unique abilities. And um, it has really been this program that we've gotten to see kids that has started in in our program and get to then go and perform on a stage, which is not something that often will happen for people with unique abilities. Um, This program was started by Jennifer Heibarger, as well as one of my former um, school directors, Carrie Milliken, Euchre now. Anyway, it's been this wonderful program that is our kind of our way to give back to the community and to give people of all ages, ranges, um, just the opportunity to find a way to dance. Do you have adult beginners, absolute beginners that come and dance? We do. So our school, directly our school, we have from children's division, which begins with at the age of three. And then we have classes that go all the way up to our open classes, which do include adults of many ages. So we do have a beginning ballet classes. We have beginning jazz classes, again, just to transform all the lives so everyone can dance. So I could restart my ballet career is what you're telling me. (laughs) Absolutely could. You know, dance is, studies show, one of the best ways to help 
Alzheimer's and prevent it. Great. I might get there just in time then. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about the mix of your own teaching philosophy and, and how much has been born out of the things that you loved about your own upbringing through dance and how much by the things that you wished you had had on your dance journey. How does that mix bear out? So when I knew that I was going to really become serious about dance, I mean, I always knew, but when my mom, I guess, really knew, <laughs> she um, sent me to my most serious teacher, Inez Morning, who uh, basically you had to audition for her in order for her to start working with you. And I wanted to be in beauty pageants because that was a big thing back in the day. So I needed a good, a new talent. I needed, I had one, I, which was dancing, but I needed new choreography and all of that. And so she auditioned me and basically said, book her for life. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> I had really not had a lot of ballet at that time. I was 12 at that time. And so she um, brought me in and she taught me, gave me all of the tools. She basically at one point, cause I wanted to be a classical ballet dancer. And she said, you know, you're really not the right body type at the time. And, um, I think we need to gear you in a different direction as far as dance goes. It doesn't mean you can't be professional, but it means maybe you won't be a professional ballet dancer. And so she kind of geared me more in that jazz modern field still, focusing on that technique aspect that I have. And then um, I started working in shows right out of high school at the age of 18. My first show was Legends in Concert. So how do you see that experience in your own teaching philosophy on, on how you teach your students at the dance company? I work primarily with the professional dancers with Merrick Dance, but stylistically I have a huge suitcase of <laughs> different styles that I've been exposed to over the years. And I feel like because of that, I'm able to, A, really be able to focus on those different styles and to really work with them specifically on details and things like that, as well as create a really great show because of my background being from Vegas. So thinking about the shows that you have coming up, obviously a fundamental part of any dance performance is the music to which the dancers move. And I would love to have you talk a little bit about what's coming up. And uh, you have the first uh, big event, I think, in, in November as part of the University Concert Series, and that features the music of a composer called David K. Israel, who has an amazing background. He worked with the composer Leonard Bernstein. He's worked with the dancer and choreographer Twyla Tharp. And his music was even commented on, in a good way, by Rudolf Nureyev. So I guess the first question is, how did you get the attention of David Israel? So one of the choreographers that I often bring in or have brought in quite a few times, she called me up one day and said, so I have this incredible opportunity this composer has reached out to me and he has been commissioned to create a new work and uh, to compose something new. And also that commission includes a choreographer. And she um, is not part of a specific company, but needed dancers. And so she asked <laughs> if that would be something I would be interested in. And I said, well, um, that I don't even need to think about this. <laughs> no brainer whatsoever. So we literally, within a week, had a Zoom meeting with the three of us, Autumn and me and David. And um, 
this is how it came. <laughs> so he sent us the music and uh, we're working on getting it recorded. It's really exciting. So the production or the uh, the performance is called Emover. Yeah, her piece is called Emover, which is the Latin word for emotions. So tell us about that work of choreography or that whole production. We have this whole performance unleashed has six works in it. Hers is one of them. I mean, this music is so beautiful and it is very emotional. So she just was like, I don't know that I want a real specific concept, like story, if you know what I mean. Um, She wanted it to be more about what the emotion that this music brings. And she really encapsulated that in her choreography. It's just such a beautiful, wonderful work. And so besides that work, there are, I should say, there are five others. And you are also one of the choreographers, along with your resident choreographer, Christopher Estes Brown. So tell me just quickly about the stories or journeys you're telling through those other works. Well, so my new work, which I am still working on a title for, maybe you can help me. Um, the titles are sometimes are always the hardest and sometimes they're the easiest. But anyway, um, it's kind of, it's about we as humans, we need to maintain our individuality, but we can't lose what it means to work together in order to have a place of equality and happiness and joy in this world. If we just go off on our own, then we can't ever come together to become one happy place. And I feel like we've really gotten out of that place. So I thought it was important. (laughs) That's going to be a powerful story to tell. (laughs) I would also love just before we end to touch on the Dancing with the Missouri Stars while I have you here as I always thought that was an amazingly genius idea to bring that concept to to mid-Missouri. And it's become such a hallmark of the annual art scene in mid-Missouri. What can you tell us about the next Dancing with the Missouri Stars? Well, our next one is um, scheduled for May 11th back at the Expo Center. We are, for the first time, going to be announcing our new celebrities at our Ballet Soiree, which is our annual kind of smaller fall fundraiser, which is October 13th. And so we are announcing the, the celebrities a little sooner to allow for the public to kind of come in and see who those new celebrities are. We're really excited. They won't start their lessons until the end of January, February. I am still on the lookout one, maybe two more. So if only I'd carried on those classes when I was five, <laughs> damn the luck. <laughs> you don't have to be a great dancer. That's what my dance do. So they are paired with my professional dancers who are also not ballroom dancers and kind of learn the ropes as they go. But um, it's such a really a fun event and everybody seems to have a great time with it. <laughs> and so you'll be announcing those on October the 13th at this at the soiree. Yes, we will. Marvelous. Well, to find out more about the Marek Dance Company's upcoming performances and their schedule of classes, visit their website at marekcenterfordance.org. And Karen Grandy, thank you so much for making time to chat today. Thank you, Diana. We are the sum of our posterity. History, whether we agree with it or not, is forever lurking as a shadow behind who we are today. We may make new stories, but we ignore the shadows of the past at our peril. 
And this idea is at the heart of artist Sarah Wynne's work, for she seeks through her art to have a conversation with posterity. She creates works that are a dialogue between elements of daily life, nature and the environment, with folklore, fables and parables. For the most part, she uses just one tool, an exacto knife, with which she carves intricate lacy stories into large scrolls of Tyvek. Each mark of her knife not only unfurling the story in these large sheets, but also creating a hole through which light may pass. These large screens are hung from ceilings and away from walls so that the directed light that passes through them casts a shadow, which she says is a nod to the flickering, firelit rituals of our cave-dwelling ancestors, shrouded in darkness and uncertainty, but determined to leave their marks upon their own walls to tell their story to us. As Sarah describes it, we are all story makers and shadow watchers. This week, an exhibit of Sarah's work opened at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery at the University of Missouri, presented by the Eric Sweet Memorial Fund. And next Wednesday, she will give a talk on her work. Sarah received her BFA in illustration from the Rhode Island School of Design and her MFA in painting from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. She works as a book cover designer and children's books illustrator and is also the art installation curator for Columbia's annual True False Film Fest. Sarah Wynn, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful introduction. (laughs) I specialize in them. (laughs) That was just poetry, my. (laughs) Well, as is your work. Thank you. So given that your work is almost obsessively detailed, and yet the end result is so incredibly zen, are you in your daily life a super obsessive detail person or perpetually calm? Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, I think my goal is always calm and I want to approach life with that Zen calmness, but I am highly detailed oriented. I am very organized. I have three children, so I have to be (laughs) on top of everything. So it's out of necessity. But I I think the goal should always be calmness. (laughs) It's true. Well, your works have so much story, history and detail in your work that I'm guessing each work has almost as much time in the research portion of the work as there is in the final product. What goes into the time before you make that first knife cut into the Tyvek? Yes, uh, research is huge with my work. As you stated, my work does start with story and narrative, traditional folktale. I'm often responding to even a poem, some kind of some kind of voice out in the world that touches something within me. And I start to do a lot of research. So if it is a traditional folktale, or even if it is something, uh, I have family portraits, if it is family history or family lore, I find out as many stories as I possibly can and, and do that research. And the research, I'm looking at imagery that has taken place in the past, that has been done before. And then I try to interweave it with my own experience and how I would react to it. I look at a lot of symbols. I feel like 
humans need symbols. We create symbols. Uh, this need sort of arises from our uh, never-ending confrontation with the environment and, and with other humans and with nature. And I think it comes from just being an individual and seeing ourselves at some point or another in this infinite universe. You write that you are less interested in directing a viewer's conclusions about your work as you are in revealing them. Talk a little bit about that and the intent of your work. Yes, I often will take stories, for instance, uh, some of the work at the George Bingham Gallery there are family portraits. And they, when you look at these pieces, you may see a dead tree and you may see some bees and you may see some honeycombs or you may see a, a moon that sort of is ever changing or birds or, or different types of flora and fauna. And those represent very clearly in my mind certain people in my life. And they represent certain ideas and stories of those people or of uh, different traditions or different folklore. And yet you're not going to get that from looking at these pieces. You may connect to the natural aspect of the piece, or you may connect to the shadows that are changing dramatically uh, next to the piece or behind the piece, or you may connect to certain um, symbols and icons that you that everyone has their own connection to. You, uh, and so I, I really enjoy that aspect that you're bringing your own personal experience into the work and what ideas and images that you may see first are connections to you. And they, they don't necessarily have to be about my stories, the inspiration of the pieces. Well, your background is painting and illustration. So I'm curious, what is the origin story for this exploration of mark making through cutting? Where did that start for you? Well, it's, it's quite complicated, actually. It did start, let's see, in 2015, I had a artist residency in Japan where I went purposely to study the stories from the Shinto religion, if you will. And so all mythology from Japan really comes from Shintoism. And during that time, I just became completely immersed in paper making, which you can't help it when you're in a place like Japan, and just completely inspired by the idea of paper being the medium, the voice of the work, rather than just a ground to put work on. There is this word kami, which is a different character uh, in Japan, but it, it's pronounced the same way, and it means both spirit and paper. And I do feel like there's this philosophical argument that could be made that the reason why traditional Japanese artwork is on paper is because it's imbued with the spirit. And kami is this idea that everything has a spirit, be it a plum tree or a cherry blossom to a stone to even, you know, the food that you eat. It's, it has this essence to it. Um, so that was my first experience diving into this idea of using paper. But also um, 
There is a traditional cultural phenomenon that I had growing up, which is Jewish paper cutting. And I understood it basically as something that you got and were presented at um, at a wedding. It, it would be a mitzvah. It would be something that you would do to give someone this gift. And it would be done either by synagogue or rabbis would do it. But it is this very traditional devotional paper cuts. And it evokes sort of this spirit of lore that that you would find in Eastern European culture or North Africa culture. It's It basically is this lost art after World War II. Most traditional Jewish paper cutting was, of course, lost because it is on paper. It is so delicate. But there were a couple hundred pieces that have survived and you can find in Israel. And and it has been revitalized uh, by many contemporary artists, especially with the use of materials such as Tyvek, which is what I use. It's a, such a strong material where you can do such delicate lacy paper cuts and yet have them really be enduring because the material won't rip. And I think there is a delicious perfection in that fact that you are reminding us of histories that we often choose to forget on a product that is largely ageless. Tyvek is a polyethylene and it's resistant to all those things that prey on us. Time, the elements, abrasion, microbes. And of course, you are also referencing nature and environment on a product that is not really biodegradable. I wonder how you think about all of that. (laughs) I know it is quite interesting because I respond to the environment uh, just like, you know, a lot of the imagery that I have are environmental imagery, but also I have feminist ideas in there. And I have, you know, there's, there's a lot that I'm trying to bring into my artwork. And yet it is on this the source that will never break down. And yes, I've had to struggle with that. I have used traditional paper, rice paper. I've used different kinds of heavyweight paper to make paper cuts. And they're beautiful and they're wonderful and they're easily destroyed. Yeah. And so the way I have (laughs) dealt with this, and, you know, we, we can comfort ourselves in all our own ways, is that, Unfortunately, what we are going to leave behind this society, this culture, is really our plastic. And if and when and hopefully civilizations long after we're gone will dig up what we have left, we will leave a bedrock of plastic. And that is, and it already is, part of what we're giving to this world And yet at the same time, all artists really do try to have their work be archival and enduring. It's one of those types of gifts and takes that I have to, I have to deal with. And it does create tension and it does create, you know, just another layer to this work. So quickly before we close, your exhibit at the Bingham Gallery opened this week and it's titled The Things of This World. Give us a quick overview of what works are in this show. So there are about four to five, quote unquote, family portraits. And these are pieces that are inspired both by uh, Missouri Ozarkian folklore. So you will see a lot of imagery 
that is environmentally Missouri-based. And then it's integrated with images that, that bring about ideas of family members. And then I have a number of new pieces that do directly reference Jewish paper cutting. These are symmetrical pieces that uh, have icons that are often found in Jewish paper cuttings. So there is one of called the Tree of Life, and that is a dogwood tree, and there's birds in there. And often in Jewish paper cutting, you will find a menorah that grows into a tree of life, and it has different birds. And then there's another piece that has fish, and another piece that has a bull and a lion. Um, and those pieces have a lot to do with linking the earth and the celestial, talking about powerful impulses and the exercise of restraint, talking about harmony and balance. Well, you can see Sarah Wynn's exhibit entitled The Things of This World, presented by the Eric Sweet Memorial Fund at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery through November the 3rd. And Sarah will be giving a talk on her work next Wednesday, October the 12th, from 7 till 8pm. You can also view her work on her website at sarahwynnart.com and that's spelled Sarah N-G-U-Y-E-N art.com and Sarah, thanks for creating work that is such a wonder to behold and for making time to chat today. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. When I invited musician Wendy Himes to be on this week's show, I did not know how timely our chat was going to be vis-a-vis the celebrity news cycle. I did not know that the global pop superstar Lizzo would stop by the Library of Congress to tour its collection of over 1,700 flutes and then play James Madison's crystal flute at her concert in D.C., Wendy, like Lizzo, is a classically trained flutist or flautist, depending on which side of the Atlantic you are on. But whereas Lizzo went on to a career in the pop world, Wendy Himes committed her flute career to the world of classical music and more specifically intercultural art music, especially works by non-European composers from Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean. Along with her husband, the Nigerian Ghanaian composer Fred Onovaraswaki, who has been on the show a couple of times, she co-founded the Intercultural Music Initiative in St. Louis, the mission of which is to highlight contemporary works by lesser-known composers of African and other racial minority descent. Dr. Himes has performed with major symphonic and philharmonic orchestras around the country and in multiple concerts in Africa. She is the programme director for the Intercultural Music Initiative Chamber Players, who give voice to flute repertoires by diverse composers. And next Monday, she will be performing at the Sheryl Crow Hall in the University of Missouri's Sinkerfeld Music Centre, together with the award-winning Norwegian-Liberian pianist Camilla Arku. And I'm delighted that this evening, Wendy Himes is my guest. Hello, Wendy. My goodness. Hi, Diana. I feel like we have some catch-up to do, as Fred has been on the show twice, and I always like to give women equal billing. So very glad to finally say welcome to you, <laughs> speaking of the arts. Well, my pleasure. I love your work and how you are giving platforms 
for all of these artists to tell their stories. So thank you for your work. Thank you. There were so many great stories to tell. There was an interesting meme doing the rounds on Facebook after Liz's demonstration on the flutes that maybe she could handle some other instruments as that might help to increase funding for music education in schools. (laughs) Are you anticipating seeing a surge in requests for flute lessons now that flute is suddenly Lizzo cool? Oh, my goodness. She is amazing. My hat is off to her for she's just unstoppable and how she is reaching the masses. And, um, you know, she's accomplished a lot that we've tried to do in the classical world without really trying too hard just by being her own amazing positive self. She has just a wonderful positive energy and she's really popularized the flute. You hear the flute in lots of R&B recordings now and uh, people are sampling it. She's opened a lot of doors, so she's doing great things with the flute world. So what made you pick up the flute and and what made you stick with it? I actually started on piano and I was not very good. (laughs) So, (laughs) You know, the whole figuring out the fingering thing, I was not enchanted by that. And in sixth grade, when I had the chance to, to choose a band instrument, I chose the flute. And I think the fact that it's so similar to singing, I always loved singing as well. Really, I enjoyed it so much more. And it was more my thing. So I think that's why I stuck with the flute. And I always had a fascination with world flutes. And I was fascinated with the flutes from Peru, those huge panpipes. And then the one called the kena, which looks like a recorder made of bamboo. I collected all these recordings, you know, by the different groups from uh, Peru. And then it was India, you know, with the Bansuri flute. Then I had the opportunity through my doctoral work to to study African flutes, which was a little bit harder because they're just, it's, it's harder to find more information about these native flutes. It was so important to study them because that's integral to understanding the music that I was trying to perform on my Western flute. Uh, so I think the flute itself, after the vo- the voice and drums, the flute is probably the oldest instrument. It goes way back and uh, all those ancient uh, traditional flutes fascinate me. <laughs> so like you say, your flute career has been focused on intercultural music, music that maybe isn't, not that you haven't played the classic repertoire, but you are more interested in music by other composers and by African composers. And the rhythms in African music are so much more interesting and diverse than your standard three, four, 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 six, eight timing. Tell us a little bit about the rhythms of African art music. I'm so glad you're asking about that because that's one of my most favorite uh, aspects to the study that I have gone through as a performer who came from the conservatory type system, right? Mm. Where most of our professors... Uh, I've had wonderful professors, but, you know, it's kind of like uh, that never ending system. You know, the professors teach what they know, and if they don't know it, they're not teaching it. So you really have to take on your own exhibition of sorts to go outside of the box. But I was, I had very supportive professors at LSU where I did my doctoral dissertation about selected flute music by African composers. And I chose these five different composers from five different countries in Africa to really study. So that, um, I think the rhythm is the, the part of the study that has helped me the most. And I think has 
has probably been the most challenging. <laughs> yeah, one of the pieces that I'm going to perform a couple of movements from is by uh, J.H. Kwabena Nketiah, a Ghanaian composer, considered the Bartok of uh, African music, uh, really. He studied all kinds of traditional music from the whole continent. And he wrote The Music of Africa, which is one of the Bibles of African ethnomusicology. But anyway, the, the polyrhythms in movement number five are influenced by the Eve peoples in Ghana. And polyrhythm, for, for those who, this, this is a new word for you, it basically means multiple rhythmic pulses going on simultaneously. So one example that we all know is, if you know West Side Story, you have this piece, America. You know that one, right? Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, interspersed with one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three. So you have those two different pulses. Now they're not going simultaneously, but imagine if they were. <laughs> <laughs> That's polyrhythm. So in the Inketia Republic Suite Movement 5, based on the Eve dance, you'll hear what's called is this very prominent bell pattern, which would which could have been played on a bell, the percussion instrument in Ghana. So the bell pattern is dun 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 And so already pretty complicated rhythmic pattern for us Western Western ears. And over that you're going to hear very intricate rhythmic patterns that I get to play. So the piano is playing the the role of the bell and uh, is very steady with that, what they call the timeline, which is that steady riff that's repeated over and over. And I just get to do all kinds of different rhythms over top. Now, this was a piece, I got the music, it looks very looks very easy. (laughs) And then you start playing it and you go, wait a minute, I thought I could count here. So this very simplistic looking piece of music took quite a bit of work when I first got it. But after you conquer these different rhythms as a Western trained classical musician, that aspect, that rhythm really improves your performance ability. Everything just was a little easier. You go back to your Mozart and your Bach and you go, wow, this seems so much easier now, you know, that I've conquered this rhythmic mountains in this music. So I think it's very important for us as Western musicians to to go outside the box in our learning. It can do nothing but improve things. Well, let's take a little listen to that movement. That is movement number five from Professor Kwabeni Nketiah's Republic Suite. And this is from one of your albums, right? Which album is this from? African Art Music for Flute. Here it is. Thank you. 
was just a short clip of my guest Wendy Himes playing the fifth movement from the Republic Suite by Professor Kwabene Nketia of Ghana. I remember you telling me one time that the way you understood and felt the rhythms was by learning to dance in Nigerian and Ghanaian villages. So what was your most memorable dancing aha moment? Well, yes, getting to travel abroad and actually uh, attend music festivals in Africa. I've, I've been to Ghana, Togo and Nigeria. I'm looking forward to, of course, going to uh, East Africa and South Africa eventually. So getting to travel and uh, see lots of, especially choirs. There's a lot of choral traditions in different countries that is just amazing to behold. I think what was also very helpful for me was I was a performer with the St. Louis African Chorus, and which morphed into the Songs of Africa Ensemble that Fred had started back in the 90s. And so we actually learned to sing African music in African languages. And you don't just sing it standing still, you sing it dancing. <laughs> so <laughs> similar to like our gospel choirs over here, it's, it's the whole movement. And uh, it just becomes something that you can learn to do. And I think that whole body movement, the dance that goes with the song, is a wonderful way to really uh, cement your rhythmic abilities. And it's it's so natural, right? We should all be moving while we play. We should all be moving while we're listening to you play, except we're all sitting very <laughs> static in our seats. So next Monday, you'll be here in Colombia with the Norwegian Liberian pianist Camilla Arku. So tell us a little bit about Camilla and the program that you're going to be performing. I am very excited to get to, to meet Camilla and perform with her. Her dad is from Liberia, and we've already talked about how much we love spicy food. So I'm very excited <laughs> to uh, spend some time with her and host her for these concerts. So we're playing a wonderful program. It has a little bit of Western music on it as well. It's got Cantabile and Presto by George Inesco, probably the most famous Romanian composer this particular piece is one of the Paris Conservatoire test pieces. So all of those pieces are well beloved by flutists and everybody will know that piece. We're also doing a very interesting piece by Fredo. This is uh, selections from his 12 eclectic pieces for violin and piano. And of course, I went and stole three of them to play on flute and piano. So. <laughs> <laughs> those are going to be fascinating. Um, Kansu is one of the uh, movements that we're going to do, which is a Central African Republic healing chant based on the Banda or forest people of the Central African Republic. It's these people, they believe that their chants and dancing uh, can actually bring about healing. So as you can imagine, the rhythm is enchanting and powerful. So I can't wait for you all to hear that. Then we're doing some movements from the Republic Suite by Nketia. Um, we're doing a piece by an Egyptian composer called The Lotus Pond, Gamal Abdel Rahim. And I'm doing this piece called Antarctica for alto flute and recorded sound by Elizabeth Brown. It's going to be with projected images of the icy landscapes that you see in Antarctica with some very 
interesting, beautiful recorded sounds and the alto flute. She's got it layered on these really beautiful electronic sounds. So that's a very interesting piece. And then we'll end with a piece by Valerie Coleman. She's a very famous African-American flutist and composer, another flutist and composer <laughs> uh, called Fanmi Imen, which is Haitian Creole for human family. And this is a, a piece that's a melting pot of musical styles. It is a very, very fun piece to play. She's just thrown the whole kitchen sink together in a, in a really fun way. It challenges the flutist. Uh, you have to sing and play at the same time, which is not easy for a lot of people. And then very interesting rhythmic patterns. You're imitating drums at one point. Uh, so I, I really love this piece. I think you'll really enjoy that. Did you just say you have to sing and play at the same time? Yes. Well, it is worth coming just for that. <laughs> Flutist Wendy Himes will be performing with pianist Camilla Arku at the Cheryl Crow Hall in the University of Missouri's Sinkerfeld Music Centre this Monday, October the 10th at 7pm. And if you're going to be in St. Louis this weekend, Wendy and Camilla will be in concert at the Webster Groves Presbyterian Church at 3pm this Sunday. You can find out more about Wendy at wendyhimes.com and that's H-Y-M-E-S, wendyhimes.com and Camilla at Camilla Arku ku.com and if you're curious about the intercultural music initiative and all of the work that it does you can check out its season of concerts at imusici.org wendy can't wait to see you in Colombia. thank you so much for making time to chat today i can't wait to see you too thanks for having me on diana And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, Mary Wilkerson from Central Bank of Boone County and Kelsey Hammond from the Columbia Art League, Karen Marek-Grundy from the Marek Dance Centre, artist Sarah Wynn and flutist Wendy Himes. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, Thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.